You're listening to the ASI Podcast. This is episode 23 of season four. This is the second part of a conversation that I had with one of my favorite authors of all time. Uh, This man's not just a, quote, Christian author. He's an author who happens to be a Christian. Uh, William Paul Young is the author of the 25 million copy best-selling book, The Shack, Crossroads, another New York Times bestseller of his. And this one, Eve, is sure to be one of the most talked about books by the theological police. <laughs> I Here's the deal. I like Paul because his stories show that when we have the courage to see through the lenses of God's love, we see others and ourselves much differently, much clearer. Shaq uh, becoming a film, getting into yeah. the, the arts a little bit here. I was totally wrong. I'd read it on the last time I interviewed you. I read on uh, Internet Movie Database that it, Oprah was going to be in it. And uh... Well, there, there was a lot of different conversations during the, you know, uh, the genesis of this coming to, coming to screen. Uh-huh. And uh, there was some conversation. Um, about that, and um, I wasn't in the middle of that conversation at all. Right. So I was hearing everything that the media was saying with regard to it. Um, but it has been shot, and uh, oh, wow. they they finished the shoot up in British Columbia, most of it um, in southern BC, which is kind of my family's stomping grounds. And um, and I got to be on the set a couple times, and it's incredibly surreal to be watching, you know, 50 crew people and the cast and they're all working on some scene and they're all uh, they're all involved in something that that you did as a Christmas gift. Right. Right? Yeah. It's just like what? Started out as copies at Kinkos, right? Uh, Office Depot. Office just, Depot. Just for clarity, yes. <laughs> Kinkos was a little more expensive. <laughs> that's, that's good. And you were working at the time. What? Two, three jobs. Three jobs. Yeah. Well, wow. how did you find the time to write that, man? Uh, one of my jobs, I had to take the train for forty minutes each way. Oh, there you go. Every day, and so I had forty minutes on the train, and um, so that's when I started working on it. So most of the shack was written on the train. Wow. In, in longhand on yellow legal pads. That's awesome. Just writing it, writing it out. And uh, so the shack, I like the way, again, uh, you know, you talked about uh, the framing of narratives and and the characters that you bring forward in in your books. Um, A a guy that interviewed, or gal that interviewed you, and she was talking about how you were telling the story about how somebody nailed on the head the murder of of Missy in the shack as being a, a, a writer from Nashville. A writer from Nashville. And she said, she said, I don't know who you are. This is, I started getting all these emails when, when the book first came out, and I still do. And she said, I don't know who you are. I don't know your history or backstory, but my sense is that Missy, um, Mackenzie's daughter, represents something murdered in you as a child, probably your innocence. And Mac as an adult represents you as an adult trying to deal with that. Right. And I, I showed that to Kim, my wife, and, and I, she said, boy, she nailed it. 
Right. So we've had the deaths in our family. We know what that kind of tragedy is like. Um, we had a six-month period where Kim's mom passed away unexpectedly at 59. Three months before that, my 18-year-old youngest brother was killed. And three months after that, my, my niece, the day after her fifth birthday, was killed. Oh, and um, so we've had those losses. So I wove those two things on the one level, losses that we experience as human beings. On another level, this is my story. I'm both Mackenzie and I'm Missy. Right. And um, and they and they're both. Those are just a different layer of the narrative. So that's when I read. You know, Max, the character, he seemed to be, you know, like a lot of us who have some kind of a a bead on our theology. Maybe we go to church and we sing, but when something like that happens, you, you're, you're almost forced to deal with it or climb inside yourself. Right. Yeah, there are two two things that will interfere with our theology in massive sorts of ways. Real life and real relationships. Right. Right? And this is a Jim Henderson quote, right? Relationships always change the rules. Right. And, uh, and so those two things have a way of just um, intersecting our theology and, and all of a sudden pushing us outside the boundary of propositional certainty toward the mystery of relationship which is incredibly scary for those of us who don't trust anybody. Yeah. You know, we want to trust proposition or our intelligence, even though we believe in eternal, you know, uh, what's it, uh, total depravity might be our background theology, which would include our, the way we think, but uh -huh. not the way I think. Right. The way you think is totally depraved, but not the way I think. So, <laughs> right, exactly. You know, so my yeah. theology is right. And, right. Uh, and so we're in conflict, even ideologically at that point. Sin is but, out there. Sin's an out there thing. It's like uh, well, yeah. it's it's out there in you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Amen. And, uh, and 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 we see sin as a behavioral thing, mm -hmm. rather than an ontological thing, rather than something that is part of our our being. The word sin, which is translated a lot of times, uh, missing the mark. Ha martia is ha, which is a negation based on a root meros, which is origin or being. Anything that is a denial of who you really are, no matter if it's all prissied up in some kind of religious sense or if it's just flat out wrong in terms of abusive and um, deceptive and lying, all of those things, if it's a denial of who you truly are and, and, the, and the very good creation that is below the damage right. that is true about you, then it's sin rather than some list of behavioral things that then we can then, you know, try to try to codify and then try to live up to in some kind of observable way, even though it's in secret, all kinds of crap's going on. Right, right. <laughs> that's, as long as we can present justification. Very, very true. And that's part of your narrative that you design in Crossroads, right? So here yes. you have a guy where... Where Tony, and I, and I relate to Tony. Man, I know Tony. I was Tony to a certain degree. I've met a lot of Tonys. And uh, it, it's it's those guys, you know, that, like you said, um, here's a guy who's not really looking for any any kind of, like, he's not seeking help, right? He's not no. a, I want to get better guy, is he? No. He, and he's despicable. Um, but yeah, he's, he is he's despicable. covered over by success. Yeah. You know, he's... He's, uh, he's used success in business to mask over the fact that 
he is one he's a, he's a despicable person he has a wake of shattered relationships in his history mm-hmm. and he has fortified his own soul and justified it in such a way that it's almost impenetrable and the question that i'm exploring in in crossroads is how does real transformation um, or grace get inside the world of someone who has shut themselves out from relationships because I think relationships are the crucible of, of real change right and um, and so that's the whole point um, and crossroads becomes then a metaphor for events on even on a daily basis but we have these major things where we get exposed and and it's kind of like you run to an intersection are you going to just blow through and take out everybody that's walking across the street or are you actually going to stop and become a little self-reflective and say you know what this doesn't work right. look at the damage that i have inflicted and then start to say okay so where does this come from? And then that starts the arduous process of change, which is hard work, but worth every bit of it. And and you you explore. I don't want to give the book away, but part of you exploring that is um, is that relational paradigm. You know, there's this there's a song by the Bleachers. That song, I want to get better. I, mean, I don't know if you've heard that one, but it's it, there's a lyric in that song where where he says, you know, I didn't know I was broken until I wanted to change. Tony gets to that, right? I mean, he's kind of yeah. carried along into those places where he can't hide from the reality of right. of relationship. And it's not even his people that he knows necessarily, but he's 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 challenged to deal with them and his heart just wants to do that, right? I mean, yeah. there is something inside every human being that is drawn in the direction of authenticity. Right. And that's that's that imago day that's in us, yeah. you know, and that that means that behind that there is a God who is authentic, who is integrated, who is whole. And so we're created in the image and likeness of that God. And so we have this drive toward authenticity and we can bury it under our pain and bury it under our addictions and everything else. But it's going to emerge. And a lot of times it emerges through the catalyst of relationship of one sort or another. Right. Suddenly you have a baby. Or suddenly someone someone reaches out and offers you a little kindness or something that you don't have a defense for. I mean, a lot of us have a defense against rage and a defense against um, somebody's, you know. But kindness and grace, the only defense we know is to run. Yeah. Uh, and what happens when you can't run anymore, you know, for one reason or another. Right. You know? So, and that's the grace of God that reaches us without violating us or becoming and God never God never becomes an abuser for our for our own sake you know for our best interest yeah and um, and that's that respectful relational pursuit that is relentless it is relentless thank God it's relentless thank God it's <laughs> relentless and it's relentless post-mortem too just to yeah say. especially in the case of Tony and crossroads so getting into to, to the Eve story, you, uh, you know, some of the narratives that you, you talk about, and you were talking about this 40-year-long kind of thing in your mind that you were kind of wrestling with and, and, and writing that, embracing that question, so to speak, right, yeah. in the book, Eve. Um, you, you start out the book, I don't want to, again, be a, <laughs> give anything away, you start out the book with... Uh, uh, Eve and 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 this this guy John and this uh, cargo container 
and I don't know how, how far you want to go into that, but uh, could it's you... It's a novel. And see, here's what was so hard about writing Eve. Uh-huh. It is by far the hardest work I've ever done. I mean, and, and I've done all kinds of jobs, manual labor of every sort and all that. Right. This was hard work. And, and, it, and it's not that... It's not that there wasn't flow to it. There was lots. Mm. But to give you a, a sense of it, the book is now 73,000 words long or something like that. Mm -hmm. I, in the editing process, took out an additional 50,000 words. Wow. Trying to craft it to the place where I accomplished two things. I was able to deal with the narrative that is so iconic and basic in our human consciousness the narrative of beginnings and craft it inside of a storyline so that a 15 year old could read it and not get lost right. that's what was so hard about this because I'm dealing with 40 years of work on the scholarship side of this issue which uh -huh. is fundamentally trying to figure out where we went so sideways and we've ended up with a world that's so male dominated and male damaged Mm. And it's not that women, I say, it's not that women can't be beastly because they can, but the majority of the damage in the world you can put at the feet of men. And that's easy to show. Right. I mean, how many brothels exist in the planet for women? You know, right. how many wars have been started by women? Who's the one who tends to run away from relationship and family and children? And, um, and this is worldwide. This oh, is yeah. not just a, a Western phenomenon. So the question is, and yet they're in charge. How did that happen? Right. You know, is this a God thing? Did God put them in charge? Like, oh, so we're going to put the abuser and the betrayer in charge and uh, see how it works out? Right. You know, um, and so those are really fundamental questions. Then all the role stuff comes into it in terms of how we then adapt to the narrative and we can create division, creates this huge gender confusion in the middle. And all of those issues arise out of our paradigm with regard to beginnings. So how do you wrap that into a storyline? Right. Well, you end, you end up with John and Eve in a conversation related to a shipping container. Right. <laughs> and, and you're suddenly in a world that, like, what's really going on here? Yeah. But then as it unfolds, you begin to get drawn deeper and deeper and deeper into this thing. And it turned out to be, yeah, my hardest work. But I think it's... It's the best work I've ever done. Yeah, I like it's. It's a page turner from page five, man. Like that's what I like about it. You know, I, it took me a little while to get into the shack. I'll be honest with you. The, the shack kind of starts out a little slower. You know. Yeah. You, you got, a lot of people can't get through chapter one of the shack because it's too wrenching, and and a lot of folks found it um, a little bit longer intake for crossroads even because this yeah. it takes quite a while to frame it. Um. But Eve, I mean, you're into it, and you're right in it, and it's your head sort of spinning like, where are we, and who is this, and what's going on, and and then it and then it begins to come back together. I like that you're doing this uh, this blog. Um, if you wanted to talk about that, I thought that that's really cool, and you you um, enter in some of these ideas uh, on the blog a little bit, which I thought was cool. Um, it, it's an invitation to a different kind of conversation. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So you're trying to engage not just religious culture, but people in general about how they think about, like this subject we're talking about now with Eve, right? Sure. These things are really important. Um, 
You know, a lot of us, we have, we, it's a challenge for us to have a conversation. Right. And, and because a lot of a conversation is listening. And a lot of us, we don't know how to do that. Yeah. And especially guys, man. Like, I have a friend who's like... Religious guys. Oh, yeah. And, and just guys in general. Like, we love fantasy football, right? We can talk about that all day long. But you start getting into relationship. I had a friend who's like, he goes, my friend, I've known this guy for 15 years. All of a sudden, he says, we're, we're getting a divorce, him and his wife, just out of the blue. Mm. And he's like, dude, we talk every week. And you never mentioned that you're hurting or your relationship is, is fractured or what? what? You know, and, it just and he blew says, him away. And he says, you never asked. Yeah, there you go. That's right. We yeah. have to get to the place of, and those are those are scary places. I have a, a friend who's a, a, a counselor, BibleBasedCounseling.com. He, he talks about it being a relational risk, like relationships require risk, and that's one thing about us men. Like we can look pretty tough on the outside, but man, women are a lot stronger at this. Maybe I'm generalizing a little bit here, Paul, but have you seen this where women tend to have a better bead and a better strength on that container of those kind of heart stuff yeah, where we yeah. get well, really uncomfortable? Know, I, that was part of my question in terms of writing Eve. And if you go back to the Genesis narrative, yes, the woman turned away from face-to-face -face relationship with God. But when she turned away from face-to-face -face relationship, she turned to a relationship. She right. turned to Adam, and that's what God said. Your turning will be to the man, and he will rule over you. And it wasn't saying this is a good thing. Yeah, this is God is saying if you turn, that's what's going to happen. Well, Adam didn't even turn to a relationship. At least the woman turns to a relationship. And God is fundamentally by nature a relational being. Mm. There are three persons in constant face-to-face -face relationship. Right. And, uh, and so there is this dynamic in a woman that is healthier by virtue of the fact that she turns to relationship. The man turns to the ground and the works of his hands. Right. Non-relational turning. He turns to his proximate source where he was drawn out of, which is the ground. And now territory becomes what's valuable. Property becomes what's valuable. And it's about competition and competing and comparing and all of that non-relationally. So when the call of the gospel comes out to return, the woman's got a singularity of turning away from looking to the man for identity and worth and value and significance and security and meaning and purpose and all that. But the man has got to turn from the ground and let go of that. And oftentimes what he does, he'll turn finally to a relationship, not to God. But now he'll look for a woman to give him all the things that the ground was not able to, and she can't either. Yeah. And then, you know, the real turning is when finally you look to your relationship with God for identity, worth, value. And it's a hard, crushing process because everything about the way we're raised is performance-based. Yeah. And it's about the ground. Images. And, yep. Surface. Yep. So, so, yeah. So what you're sensing in terms of the fundamental health of women relationally is true. Yeah. And that's part of what I'm trying to expose inside the narrative of Eve. And, and, and frankly... You see that in Jesus. You see a constant invitation to conversation. Right. Uh, you know, and, and he does it by asking questions. And um, so every time somebody asks him a question, almost every time he would ask a question back. And questions are always invitations to relationship. Yeah. And drawing, drawing parables and, and being, yeah, just asking questions or answering questions with questions to get to the heart of the issue 
It, well, it, and not just get to the heart of the issue, get to the heart of the person. Yeah. Because it's it's not the question that matters to Jesus. It's the person who matters to Jesus. Right. And a lot of times in our Western evangelical frame of reference, it's not the person who matters to us. It's the question. Right. And and therefore, it's about my dominating your question and making your space as small as my space. And if you get lost in it, I'm sorry. Right. See, it's not you I care about. It's being right that I care about. That's right. And, and in Jesus, you don't have that. So you have the rich young ruler who says, what do I do to eternal, inherit eternal life? He says, good teacher, what do I do? And Jesus turns and says, who are you calling good? That's a whole different question. <laughs> yeah, it is. But it's an invitation because Jesus is after him. Yeah. He, he's this, and it says, it makes the point that Jesus loved him. Yeah. It doesn't say, well, Jesus thought that was an awesome question. Right, and that's why he's inviting him in. Yeah, Let's, because it's human beings who actually matter. And, and yes, that, the questions become a part of that process and conversation. And he'll go into those uh, truly, truly, you know. I love that. That's how he, he unveils truth, right, is, is going yeah. after that person. Not that, the, not that the trulys are the issue, but the person in their heart struggling with what's truth you know i mean that was a big one for me paul when struggling with addictions and and my my ability to be a social chameleon right <laughs> like i i could i could have been a great politician you know back when i was my my sexual addiction was in full bloom because you know like how are you feeling i don't know how are you feeling i'll tell you how i feel well, what do you think about this i don't know you tell me how you feel about it and i'll you know or like that kind of thing and and yeah, you're right. Jesus goes in and and tries to pull out some some kind of shreds of that foundational trulys, right? Yeah, well, and and truth is a person, so it's fundamentally yeah. relational. Love is a person. Yeah. Truth is a person. Yeah, and here's a Baxter Kruger line. I think uh, he wrote the Shack Revisited and, and Across All Worlds, a bunch of other books. Brilliant, brilliant theologian, and. Um, um, he says something to the effect that wholeness, wholeness is when the truth of your, the way of your being matches the truth of your being. Right. That's wholeness. That's wholeness. Is yeah. when the way you behave matches the truth of your being. And, and so the question then is, what's the truth of your being? Yeah. Well, if like you coming from an, an addiction background and me too, coming from an abuse history, if the, and, a, and a theology that says the truth of your being is total depravity. You're just a POS, right? You're right. just a piece of crap. And, um, and that's the truth of your being. Well, after that, everything is just about covering up the truth of your being. So right. behavior is becomes behavior modification. Yeah. You're trying to be something that is actually different from what you actually believe about yourself. Well, good luck with that. Right. You'll either end up in every kind of legalism or you will burn yourself out trying to be self-disciplined to mask it over. Right. Or you'll just hope that Jesus wraps you up in some kind of righteousness and God the Father never gets a real glimpse of who you are. Yeah. You know, But it's all based on this, this idea that you are at the core of your being something bad. Yeah. And, and it has to be taken from me. That's another one, too. I got emails, and I, I felt that way, too. Like, Lord, take this from me. Like, I don't I don't want to be like this. Take it from me. And and it's kind of the, that, well, he, he didn't give it to me. It, it, it was a, that functional Savior thing that I, I ran to. And so, so let me give you an illustration that kind of speaks to that. 
nobody in the New Testament scriptures prays for patience. And every time I say that, people will go, well, I know why, because you don't want to go through the process of having to learn it, right? I'm going to like, that's not the reason. That's a total fear-based reason um, to talk about patience. But nobody prays for patience because in the revelation of Jesus, they discovered that they, every human being at the core of their being is by nature patient. The Holy Spirit is patience. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit, which is not like a commodity. You know, I've got a big vat of patience that I'm going to kind of dole out to you as you need it. Patience is an identity. It is talking about the very being of God who has now been poured out on me. By nature, I am patient. I don't need to pray for it. But if I don't think that I am, guess what? I function according to a lie that right. says, Paul, you know what? It's just the way you are. You're impatient. And as soon as I believe that, guess what? I act exactly like I believe in my heart. Yeah. Again, we're talking about ontology, who you are at the very core. If you begin to believe that you are pure of heart, that that's the truth about you, that is actually the truth about you, suddenly the way of your being begins to right. change. Because the way of your being will match what you believe about the truth of your being. And if you believe you're a piece of crap, you will end up functioning like one. And We're that's a layered life from the inside out. That's that's the layers too, you know. Yeah. And then people, that's I guess that's another thing I've seen in, in some of the films and TV shows today is there seems to be. And maybe it's getting away. Maybe we're this, it's a postmodern thing, but there seems to be a lot of this storytelling that's so existential that it doesn't resolve to the point where you see those layers. You know, I think a good story lets you in to see the layers. You know, because a guy who's Paul, there's there's time there's people who are doing horrible things on a habitual basis. Absolutely, and they can't stop on their own, and so. Yeah, man, you know, I've said it lots of times. Um, abusing a child, for example, I mean, that, that person needs to get help right away. Um, if you know someone who's abusing a child, you need to pick up the phone and yeah. call the police, the lawmakers. Yeah. Um, that kid is going to need so much help and, and stuff to, to rebuild who they are on the inside. Yeah. Um, and, and that that person, it just needs to end. It needs to stop. It needs to. It, the healing needs to start like well, right I'm with now. You. Yeah. That's a major issue, major theme in Eve as well. Yeah, and so that's that's part of those layers. Like, yes, the the piece of crap thing is there. There there should be hurt and anger over what we are doing, but yeah. if we stay there, then we just keep hiding. So there's there's like that shell that covers that identity, right? Yeah, and, and this is part of the solution to that is not isolation. Isolation yeah. drives addiction. Yeah, yeah. And so when, you know, addiction and secrecy always go together. Lies and secrecy always go together. Yeah. And so part of this is coming out into the light, being exposed. Part of this is, you know what? Maybe the world doesn't have a very good system of justice. And it, how could it? How could it unwind things? So it looks at it you know, like the evangelical traditional angry God, punitive and retributive. Right. But we know now, and we're growing in our understanding that isolation promotes addiction. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, in Eve, there is a there is someone who is lost in their crap, 
And, and again, it makes the distinction between them being crap or and just being lost in it. Right. Because that's very different. Right, right. And, um, and part of the way that they relate to this person <clears throat> is that they do something called, well, we're companioning him. We're moving him out of isolation into relationship. Right. Very purposefully, knowing that that exposure will begin to change the way that they look at the world. But you put someone in isolation um, that is totally lost inside of addictive behavior, all you're doing is promoting it. Right. And, and you'll end up putting them in deeper isolation until they're spending, what, 23 out of 24 hours in isolation? Right. In some cell somewhere? Yeah, that's and true. Because they're an addict? Yeah. yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah. That's why some of the, we have a, there's a prison system here in uh, Monroe that de they have a whole section that deals just with um, pedophiles and and it is very relational. I mean, there's groups and there's counselors and there's people that deal with that crowd in a different way than they deal with the crowd and the other. And people think, oh well, they're just separating them so they don't get killed by the other inmates. And and what I thought was cool about it, from what someone was explaining to me, um, that actually did some work down there, he said that they seem to be they pull them into groups. And, and, and almost have to make them talk about themselves and their life and how they grew up and, and stuff like that. Be known. Because that's, yeah. that's the danger and that's part of why they are there. It's, I don't know if it's a rehabilitation as much as it's getting them outside themselves, getting them to be known on the inside as a, yeah. as a method of treatment. Yeah, well, you know, you know that any involvement with pornography or any of that is also involvement with trafficking. Yeah. But you just can't separate the two. And um, you get into some of that with Eve. It seems like right from the beginning, right? It's a horrible situation. But yeah. it, again, it comes from we don't know who we are, and you know you're not going to find out who you are until there is someone outside who declares to you who you are. Right. And that's going to happen in relationship. Yeah. And the flip side of that isolation is codependency. You know. Yeah. And that's something that I've seen too. And you you tend to to work something you said in one of your blog posts about. Uh, Comp the two Christian theologies on uh, gender roles, which are complementarianism and egalitarianism, and you you reject them both. <laughs> so I do. Good. Let's talk because about they that. They still exist on the same scale of power. Right. Right. And comp to me, complementarianism mm -hmm. is the worst. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we'd never use that language with respect to slaves and free, or blacks and white, or Jew and Greek. You know, or you know, social position. But we'd use it about male and female. Right. So it's just like, are you kidding me? You know, where did we, when did we start doing this kind of? Well, turns out we've been always doing this. Right. And then the the other side, which is the egalitarian, is which is more consistent, but it still maintains an empowerment scale. And I'm and I the reason I reject it because I think there is a way to go beyond all that language and start talking about our humanity. Right. You know, I didn't write Eve to bash men. You know, right. that's, you know, men and religious systems are easy targets. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? And um, so that's not the point. I think there is a narrative that will allow us all to move toward freedom. And part of that narrative is to begin to understand the absolute beauty that exists in our humanity that has been disfigured terribly. Right. And, um, and then we can begin to also celebrate the things that are different in terms of our ethnicities and our backgrounds and the things that we all bring to the table. But that's a, that's a celebration 
of the uniqueness of an individual that includes their gender, that includes their ethnicity, that includes their heritage. Yeah. And uh, but it's built on a foundation of recognizing their humanity, and uh, that's why Jesus is so central to me because the incarnation is an expression of what human beings have always been, but but forgot. Right. Got got away from that story, <clears throat> and as the years roll on, we we tend to to forget more or it's just like diving into that that part of ourselves that we're we're so afraid of you know yeah and that's where you know a lot of the recovery groups have been helpful with that except for the part where there's a there's a bully factor that you are again it's going back to that kind of reformed sort of you're an addict, you know, that's the first thing you have to say. You go into a group, you stand there and you say, my name is Russ and I'm an addict. Um, talk about that a little bit. Like I, I see the positiveness of it and I see why it works because it's part of humility, right? We go in and we say, hey, I got this problem. I'm not hiding it. I'm not pretending that I don't. So here I am. But the danger is the identity in that, right? Exactly. And that's, that's the limitation. And again, I'm thrilled that AA exists on the planet. Yeah, me and too. Al-Anon and I'm, you know... SA, NA. Those, those are organizations that exist because there wasn't a safe place inside the church. Exactly. For us to deal with our crap. So, I'm, I am so for them. Um, but they would acknowledge, too, that there's always limitations. And, and one of the inherent limitations is this issue of identity. If you think that it's because of the accountability group and uh, you've been able to muster enough self-discipline that that is why change is going to forever last, then you're, you've just switched addictions. That's right. Right? Now, it's a much better and some more socially acceptable addiction, and I'm kind of for it because it causes way less damage. Yeah. No doubt about it. But it hasn't changed the way you see yourself. And, and that ontological switch is going to allow you one day to say, you know what, I'm not an addict. Right. You know, I was, because of sexual abuse and history in my life, I was horribly addicted to pornography, just terribly. I haven't had an issue for more than 20 years, none at all, zero. And it's not because of an accountability group and not because of self-discipline, not because I'm scared of going to hell. Right. It's because I finally believed that I'm pure of heart, that that is who I am. Yeah. And now the way of my being is an expression of the truth of my being. I am pure of heart. And it's not just, oh, uh, positive statements about, oh, I'm pure of heart, pure, therefore I am. This is, no, Jesus is pure of heart. And he came to tell me what it's like to be fully human and fully alive. And I will choose to trust that that's the truth of who I am. And guess what? The way of my being. The way of your being. You talk about that on the blog, too. You said that joy making joy more of a constant companion rather than an, uh, an occasional acquaintance I thought was cool. Um, in the beginning of the book, Eve, you talked about, um, you hit on this uh, subject of, of people with the shadow sickness. I wonder if you could go into to joy and the shadow sickness a little bit. Joy, you know what I discovered, and I was 50 years old, I'm a religious kid. Okay. Um, joy is... I like to think, you know, there was a big surprise when Joy became a constant companion rather than an occasional acquaintance. And, uh, and Joy wasn't always a constant companion. It's just that I wasn't a companion. 
And I was always running away into imaginations that don't even just I call it trip. You know, what, it's the way we try to control the universe by creating imaginations and then trying to manage everybody in our world right. so that the things we're afraid of don't happen. And um, that's part of the shadow sickness. Uh, shadow sickness where we have turned and created a darkness that then defines everything. Right. And um, so it includes all the lies that we believe about who we are, you know, and and and, and worship songs that tell us what a piece of crap we are <laughs> right. ontologically. I mean, all of these things perpetrate the lies or the shadows that we then live within and hiding and uh, deception, um, uh, creating the, the, you know, the shack on the inside that we won't let anybody into. That's all part of the shadow sickness. Right. And it continues to perpetrate it until something breaks in the outside. And that's usually a relationship of one sort or another. Right. A healthy one. A life-giving one. Right. You know, even any any relationship has the seeds of life and healing. You know, uh, because we're not going to be able to wait for somebody who is perfectly whole and and complete, other than God. But God doesn't; He's not God apart from us and our community. And um, so, you know, if you're waiting for somebody perfect to come along, you're going to have a long wait. That's right. Other than you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But um, but we're designed to function in community. So we're going to have to muddle our way through this. And that's part of the work and the mystery of relationship. Yeah. That's another thing my, my friend Daniel Pryor said. He said that uh, we see relationship as something that we need to do to get what we want. No, relationship is the prize. Relationship is the... Relationship uh, is not a... Yeah, relationship is not a means to an end. Yeah. Relationship is how we're designed to function. Yeah. You know, and that, that changes everything. Because uh, then we're no longer using people, we're abusing people right. in order to get something, which is, you know, Tony and Crossroads, that's what he does. Yeah. yeah. And then he sees towards the end that that uh, we are made in his image, right? That we're a, a new creation. Which is relational. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, yeah. we're, we're a and new... We were a very good creation to begin with. We right. just forgot. Yeah. We were, we got lost in the shadows. That's right. Paul, thanks again uh, for being on the podcast, man. Uh, uh, I like your your blog, and I like the the kind of cool social media uh, factor that you got built in with the blog as well. So you really try and make it like more of a conversation than just you yeah. talking at people, right? Yeah, it's we're just trying to find new ways to to utilize the technology and the social media in a way that is more human yeah right and it's how do we we're living in a world full of this stuff how do you be in it and not of it you yeah. know and so that's where creativity comes in let's see if we can find a different way to do this that it actually is respectful of the other instead of using the other or abusing the other or you know or, let's find a way for creativity not to become propaganda you yeah. know that kind of stuff yeah exactly so and it's a it's a process, like everything. Trust building. Yeah. Tr- trust building yeah. with with the folks that were like me. Like, oh, what does this Christian guy want? Uh, yeah, right? exactly. Well, we know. <laughs> I'm either right. a target or a means to an end. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's part of my, my passion doing this podcast. I didn't, I never set out to do a, a Christian podcast uh, or, or preach to the choir, right? Part of it, the choir is the problem. Um a big part of that but man I, I again I, I thank you for being on the podcast I thank you for what you do and the, and the 
the stories you write and how you um, engage the heart and soul because I think Thanks, that's important. Russ. Thanks, Russ. <laughs> it's so um, I so appreciate the time. You bet, Thank man. You. Thanks. Much Thank love you. to you. You too. Bye. There goes W.M. Paul Young, William Paul Young, whose book Eve is in bookstores now. You will probably be able to find it in any bookstore (laughs) around right now. Uh, His website is wmpauljoung.com.org. That's where the blog is, and I'm sure there's promo codes and stuff like that there for buying the book online as well. Uh, the book Eve is great. I finally finished it. I did this interview a few weeks ago before I had finished the book, and it, it really is a, a, a great work. Um, I've been talking about a lot about, even before this interview, about relationship and the importance of that. And, you know, I, I know the scariness of it. I know that there's fear for, for some of you in that just from email conversations that I've had and some of the reluctance to, to stay engaged in this conversation because of the, you know, it feels like a should thing, right? Like you should be in relationships that are more life-giving and important, right? Like I'm, like I'm that guy. And, you know, I, I just, I just want you to know that there are people who will meet you in your story, all right? There are helpers along the way that will make your life more interesting, right? Um, Moving the story forward, breaking up some of this despair and depression. I I know that it, it feels like survival. Sometimes it just feels so safe, but we know that it's killing us and causing more pain and and anguish and you know blah but man let me tell you something it is worth it it is worth it to be known and I wanted to leave you with that um again I am so incredibly grateful to be able to interview uh Paul Young and and to know this guy a little bit and his book man brought me to tears a couple of times because he he gets into that place, that place where I felt so dirty and the place where I felt like no one would want to know me, the, the place where I felt so scared to actually let people into that part of my story, into that part of my heart even. Um, he addresses some of that in the book and, and that's one of the parts that brought me to tears. And the second part that brought me to tears was the the fact that God loves you and I, the fact that he even delights in us that not only does he love us that and he's pursuing our hearts but he actually cares and and actually delights in us like a parent does a child and it's it's mind-blowingly beautiful um the way he puts into words that part of the the narrative of this story so again um the book is called eve wmpauleyoung.com uh, my name is Russ Shaw. Matthew 5, something that Paul brought up, had me back in the Bible and going through a lot of the things that the Apostle Paul said. The guy that 
penned uh, two-thirds of the Bible, uh, the epistles, the Apostle Paul, and then things that Jesus said about loving others and, and being engaging people rather than issues, right? Bringing truth to folks in a loving, caring way as the creator of the universe put on human flesh to come and, and, and be with us, talk with us, um, walk with us, show us he knows and has been here. It had me thinking about something that Paul Young touched on, you know, Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, before that, you know, the door of the Beatitudes, as my, my friend Pastor Rick would say, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Um, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then there's the pure in heart, the peacemakers. All of these are relational attributes. And see, that's the thing about the higher power concept that we talk about in recovery that we don't have to muster up enough strength to do it, all right? I just want you to keep that in mind with this interview and some of the talks I've been doing on, on relationship and being known. Um, God knows. God sees. God knows your weaknesses and delights in you and loves you. Russ at ASI247.org is my email address if you'd like to chat or just talk about some of the stuff. ASI247.org, there are surveys on the webpage where I ask you, the listener, 10 questions to get to know you a little better and uh, to maybe bring the audience into your story a little bit as we talk about this stuff together. Going to do some more of those shows soon. Um but nobody ever asked me these kinds of questions, and that's why I put them there on the website. I, I think it would be tremendously helpful if we weren't afraid to ask these kinds of questions, and uh, that's that's why I put them out there to uh, to provide some help and hope in, in in the questions. Is being known difficult? Is it hard, Russ, to get out of your shell? Um, yes, it, it is but it is completely worth it. It is beautifully, mysteriously, and incredibly worth it. And uh, I just wanted to leave you guys with that, and I wanted to leave you with a song um, that reminded me of the fact that the grace of God is living and moving and dwelling inside of you and me. Again, reminded me of this 1 Peter 5, 7, this is from the Amplified Bible, which takes all of the English translations and, and just puts them together to enunciate what's being said in Greek in this case. Um, Casting all your cares, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns once and for all on him, for he cares about you with the deepest affection and watches over you very carefully. That is... Uh, First Peter 5, 7. This is the band uh, Finding Favor. 
The song's called Cast Your Cares. I love you guys. I mean that sincerely. Um, Pray for me. I'll be praying for you all. Till next time. Bye. When fear feels bigger than my faith And struggles steal my breath away When my back's pressed up against the wall With the weight of my worries stacked up tall You're strong enough to hold it all I will cast my cares on you is a listener-supported podcast. If you'd like to donate to help keep this message alive and growing, please consider donating. The ripple effect is bigger than you know, bigger than I will ever publicly divulge. Donations are gratefully accepted at ASI247.org.